Malachi chapter 2 tonight. We are going to get back into our study of the message of the 12, Malachi chapter 2. The way this lays out is the last verse of chapter 2 really is the intro into the first verses of chapter 3. So we'll begin our reading in chapter 2, verse 17, if you look there with me. And the Bible says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? And the Lord says, When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? There's two ways of asking or saying the same thing. In other words, we look out here and we see evil happening, it seems to have your blessing. Or I can say this way, why don't you judge people who are being bad? This is what the people are really accusing God of, of not being a righteous judge and or being ambivalent or indifferent to evil and good in the world. So now God responds to this accusation in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, who you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Think about light soap here, how it cleanses. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah, of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against the false swears, and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside from the stranger, from his right, fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, and I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments as we, Lord, examine your word. I pray, Lord, you'd help us understand the context, so that, Lord, we might make appropriate application for our lives today. And Lord, we might leave here having gained insight into your desires for our own heart. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. Since we've taken a reprieve from our study, let me just do the briefest of review here. The book of Malachi was written to what we are calling the post-exile community. In the history of Judah, uh, they ended as two nations, Judah and Israel. Israel fell into captivity under the Assyrians uh, 150 years or so before Judah did. Judah had a number of good kings that helped prolong them as a nation. But in time, they fell into the same exact sins that Israel did. And they were taken to captivity, not by Assyria, but rather by the Babylonians. Um, Daniel, the prophet, prophesied that they were there for their sins and would remain so for 70 years and then be turned back home to the Promised Land. And so after the destruction of, of uh, Judah rather, by Babylon, they were held in that foreign land for 70 years. Now in that time, Babylon itself fell as a world power. And Persia uh, really came to be the prominent world power in 
Babylon's place. And uh, as such, they really were stewarding over, or if you will, they held captive Judah uh, in the land of Babylon during the days that this was written. In other words, Persia was the nation in control of Israel at the time that they were about to be released. Under Cyrus and Darius, these are the kings of Persia, the Jews, through a number of geopolitical events, um, really which were divinely inspired by God, were allowed to go home, fulfilling the prophetic timetable spoken of by Daniel for 70 years. Now, they were led by two men, primarily at first, if you remember, as they were go home, 50,000 left the region of Shinar of Babylon and were beginning to travel back to Jerusalem, which, by the way, was in desolation and destruction. The walls were torn down. The temple was, was uh, in ruins. Uh, it was occupied by uh, foreign powers that did not want the Jews return. It was a very precarious situ situation to walk into. But two men, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua was an ancient descendant of Aaron, and um, Zerubbabel was an ancient descendant of David. So you kind of have a priestly leader and then a kingly leader. And these two men brought this 50,000 people back. They were given the instruction to rebuild the temple and to begin to rebuild the city. And we all kind of know the stories. This was a very difficult thing to do, um, but they began to do it. They were uninspired at times, but through the preaching of Haggai, um, uh, Zechariah, uh, even Malachi here a little bit, uh, they were spurned on. At a later time, after the wall, I'm sorry, after the city and the temple was partly rebuilt, and then we know the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, and they came along. And they encouraged the people to rebuild the walls now to give the city protection. And Ezra, the scribe, also instructed the people in um, the worship of Jehovah that many of them had forgotten in being away captive for 70 years. So it is to this post-exile community returning to Jerusalem after being at captivity. Uh, it's really the, the, the end part of this time um, before we call the intertestamental period uh, before, you know, John the Baptist and Jesus would come. And so with some coaxing from these minor prophets, um, Malachi finally, you know, was the prophet of the day. And so he really came after probably most likely Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, several, maybe 150 years before Zerubbabel. I did, uh, and Joshua, but <clears throat> they were there. Okay, so the, the temple is partly rebuilded, nowhere near its former glory. The city is in some repair. The walls have been built. We know that from Nehemiah, and, and the people are there, and a lot of the work's been accomplished. And you think uh, that they ought to be celebrating and happy, and, and I'm, I'm sure for a time that they were, but now they're kind of there with their hands in their pockets, and they're frustrated. They're not happy. As a matter of fact, they're not just happy, they're complaining. The Jews had the expectation that when they were to come back after the exile to Jerusalem, that after they did what God had asked them in rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, and rebuilding the walls, that the Messiah would come. And they were waiting for their day in the sun. And they were expecting the Messiah to arise and Jerusalem to, to rise into you know, worldwide prominence and for, for them to be, you know, the leader of the world and for, you know, the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylons to fall by the wayside and that, you know, they would be ushered into what we call the millennial kingdom. And they were waiting for this moment. They, they just thought that's the way the prophetic timetable would work. And of course it didn't. Instead, times were still hard. 
um, Israel was, was really minuscule. It was really nothing in the world. Uh, they were a trade route to which the major world powers, you know, really traded goods. But Israel itself, you know, they were still politically, financially irrelevant. They had no world power. Life was still hard and a struggle. And they viewed the nations around them as having more blessings. You know, in their mind, blessings was simply material prosperity. More blessings and prosperity than themselves. So in that state, and we'd all understand that, when we've been discouraged or disheartened, um, then our commitment wanes a little bit. You know, our efforts aren't what they used to be. Um, and that's what happened here. They had diminished commitment to the Lord, and to His temple, and to a right way of worship. Their lives were full of complaint against the Lord. Even the point as we read the text of really severe accusation. And here in our text, these accusations are, are really very close to being blasphemous. And so that's what the, the book of Malachi is really about. It's about the people's attitude in this time and God's answering of their complaints throughout the book. And so what we have here is kind of this dialogue throughout the book of Malachi. Uh, it, it's, 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 uh, it's not a real argument between God and, and any one group of people. It's just kind of the, the spirit and attitude of the nation and, and God doing business with that. And so it's this dialogue back and forth of the people saying, you know, where are you, God? Why don't you love us? Why don't you bless us? And then God's reply back to them uh, over and over in this book. I think there's five or six different individual arguments that go back before, back and forth between the people and the Lord. And, and, and most of their questions, they ask God, and this would be the spirit in their heart, had an accusatory tone to it, you know. And, and, and then God would often reply graciously, but often directly, almost never harshly. And so they would ask questions like this, why don't you love us? And God would say, I do love you. Matter of fact, I, I've been with you from the beginning. I've kept my promises to you. We entered into a covenant years ago. You didn't keep the covenant, but I've been faithful. I protected you. I provided for you. And, and I do love you. I've always loved you. Well, why don't you honor us? And, and God said, I have, have, I have honored you. I, I, I've taken care of you. I've guided you. But he says, but where's mine honor? You give more honor. Uh, if, you, if you're going to go see the governor, you give more honor to the governor than you would to me. You would take a good gift to him, but you bring me these lame sacrifices that we've talked about. And, and, and you don't even honor me in your own lives. The way you treat each other as a family. You men don't honor your wives. You're divorcing them at, at just at will and without any discretion at all. You're outside the boundaries of the law. And, and so God comes back at them at every turn. And, and they're asking for blessing. And God's basically saying this, well, why don't you become the people I can bless? You, I can't give you what you want because you won't be what we've agreed to be in terms of relationship. So in response to their questions, accusation, you know, God articulates and even delineates their sins, their failures of breaking the covenant. And he said this, you've not loved me. You've not honored me. You give me second best and nowhere near the first. You pollute my altars with the kind of attitudes you bring into the, to the temple. Um, you speak lies to me and one another. Um, you, you don't care anything about the marginalized in society. And, and I've said over and over, and, and this is a theme throughout the Minor Prophets, that I want you to take care of and honor the marginalized of society. And you have no part in that. 
You're stumbling at every area of the law. And matter of fact, you're even dealing treacherously with each other. In other words, he's saying this, you're still breaking the original agreement we had. When you broke it the first time, you went into seven years of captivity, you've come back and you're no different. You're like a child who's been spanked, but will have learned nothing from it. You're like the guy who's been punished. In other words, forgive me, you're like the dog that goes back to his vomit over and over again. The pig that goes back to his mire, and you're asking me to bless you, you're asking me to do these things for you. I'm going to keep my promises, but, you know, come on. Be, be the people I, I can bless. And so then, for tonight, the discussion that is occurring between God and the people, this, this is a new um, dialogue, and it starts in verse 17 of chapter 2. And so, these little back and forths have been going between the add to the Spirit of the people and God through this prophet Malachi. And so, we have this little momentary reprieve. And if you can kind of get this. And you have the almighty, omnipotent, majestic God looking at His people and he's saying this to them, you are wearing me out. You're just wearing me out. Literally, your nonstop accusations and um, lack of getting this, your lack of understanding, it's a weariness to me. Okay, now let's just stop. We all have felt that before, right? We've been in discussion with someone, you know, bless their hearts, they've been slow to understand. You know, or maybe our kids when they were, you know, young or teenagers, you know, so, so no one here feels bad. Um, and you've been explaining something to them and they're, and they're just not getting it. And you may not say it, but you feel it and you're thinking, man, this is a weariness. This discussion, this dialogue, it's just not ending. We're not getting anywhere. It's not, it's, it's, it, we're, we're resolving nothing. It's just a weariness. And this is what the Lord says. Look at verse 17. That's exactly what He says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And so, he says this to them. And remember, this is a hypothetical discussion. And so, they look at the Lord with those same doe eyes, deer in the headlights, and they, they do what they always do. Yet, you say, how have we wearied you? Like, Lord, how, how have we wearied you with our words? And he says, well, let's just read the text. He says, well, you're saying to me that everyone that doeth evil is good. Yeah. Or you're saying... I'm not a God of judgment. I'm indifferent and I'm ambivalent to evil. And so the Lord's saying, you've weirded me with your negative attitude and your excuses for not honoring me. I'm really growing tired of your accusations of my inactivity in your life. I'm not inactive, but that's what you're accusing me of, of being inactive. And their retort is, well, we don't see that. We don't know how we're wearying you. But once again, in long-suffering and grace, God... Uh, Answers their question again. And he says, um, um, well, I'm going to answer what you said. It, 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 and let me just kind of maybe distill and summarize this in a way that we would all understand, maybe understand this. They're suggesting to God that they, their doing good isn't worth it. Their doing good isn't worth it. That'd be a way to distill these two things. You could say, you know, you're not being a God of judgment, or you're calling, you know, you're not really calling out people who are doing bad as you treat them like they're good, they're indifferent. What they're really saying is this here we are trying to serve the Lord, but we don't see the fruit of it that we want. Now, by the way, their service was lame 
It wasn't good. It wasn't pure. It wasn't right. But that's how they saw it. And, and so um, they were basically saying, we're here trying to do right, but it doesn't seem to be paying any dividends. Okay. Now, we wouldn't rush to say we understand that, but the truth is all of us sort of do that, don't we? We can relate to that. There's been times in our life, maybe, where we've done right and done right and done the right, served the Lord, served the Lord, worked hard, whatever else. And we're, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, we're going, man, I'm not seeing the paycheck here. Well, there's this person at the church, and I've been nice to them and nice to them and nice to them, and I've been nice to them and nice to them, and they're never nice to me back. There comes a point where we want to say, in justifying ourselves, it's just not worth it. You know, it's just, we're just not getting the paycheck we want back for this. And, and so it's, you know, we, we, now we do blame shifting. Well, it's not, it's not my problem, it's yours. You're, you're, you're not judging righteously. You should be getting on to all these people. You, you should be blessing me and making them suffer. And, and, and that's what's really happening here. That's, that's the attitude. And that's the heart, you know, of their belief. When they say everyone that doeth good or doeth evil is good, it's not necessarily trying to turn things upside down. It's, it's just saying this, God, you're just treating things as ambivalent. And we're just, we're tired of trying. We're tired of trying. We can't see a difference in how you respond to those who do good and those who do evil. We don't see evil being punished. So what's the, what's the point of trying? They're saying this, where's your judgment? It seems like that you, and it's, it's pressing the point that you even delight in those who do evil because we see, we see money in their pockets. You follow the line of thinking they have here? And so this is kind of blame shifting and accusation. It's a way of really saying that what they're trying to do isn't, isn't paying off. These complaints are, um, well, they're blasphemous, aren't they? They're questioning the character of God. They, 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 uh, they are way out there. Now, there are things that we might relate to each other, but to accuse God of this is really out there. So God hears this, <laughs> and so He just says, He listens, and now he, verse 1 of chapter 3, He says, um, Behold, okay, I'm going to say something, and you better pay attention to what I'm going to say. I've, I've listened to this, this junk. I've listened to your accusations. You're telling me that you being good is not worth it. I mean, I'm being ambivalent and indifferent to the evil, that I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not righteous in my judgments. So God says this, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1, He says, Behold. Let me tell you what's really going on here. He says, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, the God that you say you want, the God of judgment, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, and whom you say you delight in, behold, he shall come. And what you saying this, you want judgment? You want the world to be set right? You want to be treated fairly? You just hold on because it's coming. You know, my time's not your time. God makes everything beautiful in His time. Um, you are part of a history that is ushering in the ultimate judgment. It may seem long to you, but it's on my timetable. And you want the God of righteousness and judgment to come? Well, He's coming, buddy. And He's going to sit on His throne. Now, I'm adding some sarcasm with the buddy because that's just my personality. But that's sort of the attitude here. You want judgment? You want to see me judge the wicked? You want to see me make all things right? Behold, I'm going to send a messenger. Now, 
a messenger, and that, that phrase in the Hebrew had connotations in the Hebrew mind. He was supposed to conjure up Moses, was the idea. When Israel was in bondage to the Egyptians, they needed deliverance. And before they were delivered, God sent a what? A messenger. His name was Moses, and he came with a rod, and he judged Pharaoh and Egypt. So before the deliverance came a messenger. The idea is also one of judgment, and another mind, a name should have come to mind, and that was the name of Elijah. Uh, Israel was in great apostasy, apostasy with Ahab and Jezebel, and the country needed judgment. And so what did God do? He sent a messenger. His name was Elijah. And man did judgment follow Elijah. And, and so the idea here is this. We're in a time, and, and I know things aren't perfect or what you want them to be, but I, I, I'm sending a messenger and judgment is coming. And when he's finished with his message, the Lord himself is going to come and sit on the throne in the temple. And everything that you say you want is coming. That's right. That's the idea of this verse. <laughs> I'm going to get ahead of myself, but this is a warning to us. Be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Now, I'm on like page 20 of my notes and I'm lost because I just ran with that. So the Lord's saying, you want, you want judgment, you want fairness. My messenger come. Well, I think we can probably understand prophetically. He's probably talking about John the Baptist specifically here in the text. Because the ultimate judge who sat on the throne one day, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would come first as Savior. Then a second coming, the second advent, when he would sit on the throne in the temple, of course, would be this, that person. So he's probably re referring specifically beyond the idea and the metaphor to John the Baptist. And then, of course, um, the Lord Jesus Christ coming back and sitting in the temple. So the day is coming when your fortunes will change, is what he's saying. You're complaining, but look at me. The day is coming when your fortunes are going to change. And I'm going to come and sit on my earthly throne. And again, I believe that's a reference to Jesus. And what you say that you want, I'm going to give you. Now verse 2, but. <laughs> okay. As a parent, your kid wants something, you say, oh, okay, I'll give it to you. But there's a catch. There's a caveat. You know, there's, there's something more that goes with what your request is asking. Verse 2 is the but. He says, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? Because when he comes back, he's going to be judge. Okay, but here's what he's saying. He will be judge of all. That's right. See, right now you have a skewed perspective. See, I, I can see all your faults, Brian. I see all your faults, Bill. You know, I see all your faults, Josh. I see all that. And you, God get him. God get him. God get him. Center, center, center. But God's saying, when I come back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge all of you. And they're going to get what they deserve, but if you're not careful, so will you. So will you. Because I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge everyone. And I'm going to wash everything, like with Lysope. And we'll see what's clean. 
and I'm going to refine all the dross, and we'll see what silver and gold comes out. I'm, I'm going to, you want judgment? I am the ultimate judge in righteousness, and so I, I'm going to judge. So when he says, when, when he comes, he will judge, not just the nations, but I'm going to judge you. So the, this, is the, this is like, you know, me looking at you, Butch, and saying, you want judgment? Or do you think you can take it? Do you want what I give them, do you want me to give to you? Because who can abide it? Who can stand before a holy God? See, the truth is all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So if we're saved, it's, it's not by any merit or goodness. These people thought they were all that in a bag of chips, but they were none of that. They were none of that. Who can abide this? You want judgment? The truth is no one can abide his coming. No one can stand to this fuller's fire. No one can be washed this way and not feel its heat, including you. None of you can stand. No one will. His coming will not just punish evil, but it will purge and purify and cleanse each of you. And that may be more painful than you want it to be. The idea is this, when He comes, He will demand that your hearts be right. Not just ugly towards others, but your heart has to be right. Now, the implication and suggestion here is this. You're asking for something, but I'm telling you to be careful. So, if I'm asking you to be careful, maybe your heart's not right. So, before I come, and by the way, I'm being merciful in my delay. Maybe I'm giving you time to get your heart right, buddy. Maybe you need me to wait. What you see is impatience with all the wicked. I may be waiting not just for them, but for you. Because if you want me to come right now, you better be ready right now. Otherwise, you, you, you are in trouble. The picture is this. You are standing here with filthy hands asking God to make the world clean. So let's make it clean. And uh, the idea, it's the sermon title is, you better reconsider your focus. You want the world to be right? Well, part of the right reason it's not right is because you failed to be a part in making it right. And if you don't repent, purify yourselves, you know, they're not going to have a chance to stand, but maybe neither will you. Verse 4, very quickly, but the messenger of God's coming. This is what he's saying. There's going to be time. And then after the refining, at what we know of God's grace coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, then he will make things better. And he says, I will be near. You think I'm absent, but I'm not. But I am literally going to be physically present on this earth one day. And I will judge the wicked then. And then he goes into to all he's going to judge. He's, he's talking about the people that they see that they want God to judge. So I, I'm going to judge the sorcerers. And I'm going to judge the adulterers. And I'm going to judge the dishonest. And I'm going to judge all those who oppress the vulnerable. The fatherless, the widow, the alien. Stranger, um, I'm going to judge those who didn't help them. 
And there's this idea here that there's special judgment. Now, I want us to listen, because this has been a repeated message in the Minor Prophets. There's going to be special judgment for those who have paid no attention to the marginalized and vulnerable of society. Throughout the Minor Prophets, this is a big deal to God, that His people um, have concern about the disenfranchised of society. This is a message that really conservatives and fundamentalists need to hear, because we are all about the gospel, and we, we kind of even have a little bit of chagrin about anything that might be socially gospel. We're really just, we need to be really careful where we tread there. A man who needs to be saved might just need food as well. And to God, this is a big deal. But the idea is this, and I want us to hear this tonight, and I'm getting ahead of myself. God's saying this. Okay, this is, this is for our church family. This is something we can really relate to. I'm not, only to. I'm not only going to judge the evil that's present, but I'm going to judge the good that's been forfeited. In other words, you may say I'm not an adulterer, and you may say I'm not a sorcerer. Okay, but there's been people in the street you could have helped and you didn't. That's going to be judged too. You driven by people, you heard about people's needs, you could have been a help and a blessing and you forfeited that because that's the vulnerable society. So when I come back and judge, I want to judge all the evil, but I'm going to judge the good that you knew to do and did it not. That's in the book of James as well. Okay? There's a responsibility. You want me to judge? I'm judging all the evil and what you should have done and you didn't. Now, right now, everyone in this room is indicted, are we not? So, let's be real careful about asking God to correct all the evil, wicked sinners out there when we drive by people who need our help every day. So, verse 6 concludes, he says, despite your accusations, I'm no different than I've ever been. I'm God, I change not. And, uh, And by the way, you should be glad I... I haven't changed because I've always been merciful. And if I haven't, and if I wasn't merciful, you would already be consumed. So before you get too big of a hurry to condemn others, you might reflect on the fact that I have been merciful to you, is what the Lord says. This is quite the correction. The evil you want punished in others exists in some measure in all of us, is what he's saying. So be grateful that I've not destroyed you yet. Very quickly, the applications here, I've already made them. I I think they're already obvious and self-evident. But let me very quickly um, capsulize them in a phrase, which will take like 10 sentences because that's what I do. The first thought is this. We need to be guarded against always seeing evil in others and not in ourselves. We need to alter our focus. We need to be careful and guarded against always seeing the evil in others and not ourselves. Jesus' harshest words of condemnation were directed towards the Pharisees, the self-righteous. Because all they did was saw the evil in other people. And they, they struggled so mightily to see the sin in their hearts. Take your Bibles very, very quickly turn to Matthew chapter 23. I don't have time to read all these. I think we can still finish before, before 8. And of course, he's just condemning the Pharisees here. In chapter 23, verse 1, 
He says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, or religious position, and therefore whatever they bid, you observe, or it's respect them. He said, That observe and do, but do not ye after their works. <laughs> what they say from the Bible is right, but they're not practicing what they say from the Bible. For they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments, and they love the utmost rooms at feasts and chief seats of the synagogues. And he goes on and on and on. Look with verse number 12. And whatsoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted, because that's not who they were. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, you're two-faced, you're duplicitous, you're bifurcated, you're, 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 there's two sides to you. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Words, you go to church, but you steal from the widow. <laughs> Woe unto you, verse 15, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you compass sea and land to make a proselyte, and when he is made, uh, you make him twofold more the child of hell than you yourselves are. And he goes on, verse 15, blind guides. And you make these oaths in church, but you don't keep them from the one who built, you know, who is the real temple. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Of course, they did that so they could be seen of men. But you have omitted the weight of your matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These days you ought to done and not leave the others undone. And this just goes on and on. You strain a gnat, you swallow a camel. The, the idea is this. You, you're only looking at other people's failures and you're not, you never in your refusal to hold a mirror in front of your own to see your sins to repent of it. You just won't do that. Luke chapter 18, don't turn there, but just get the idea. In Luke 18, Jesus upheld that there's this contrast between two men, you know, a sinner and a, and, a, and a Pharisee. And when the sinner was confronted with the idea of being a sin, he wouldn't even look up to the Lord. You know, he, he beat his breast. And the Pharisee said, well, I'm glad I'm not like other guys. I'm glad I'm not like the guy just standing on the street out there. And it wasn't the idea of gratitude, it was superiority. And Jesus hated that attitude. In Matthew verse, chapter 7, verse 1, we all know this. Jesus looks at him and says, uh, judge not lest you be judged. And he's not saying you know, have some moral discernment, and ethical discernment. He's saying this, the word krinos there is, is what it is in the Greek, judge. Don't condemn. Okay, this is, this is be real. We drive down the street, we see the homeless down here. It's real easy to make all the snarky comments. Okay. I don't know how much of it's merited. I don't know how much it's their fault. I don't know how much mental incapacity. I have no idea. It's just really easy. Isn't it? Yes, sir. Well, that's just a plight in a leg. I just want that to go away. That's, I mean, it's just, I'm just telling you, it just comes out real easy. And maybe there ought to be a different attitude about that. I don't know. I'm just saying that's just an example. If we're not careful, that we're making judgments that probably belong to God, that we're condemning, and maybe there's more to the story than that. I don't know. I know this. In John chapter 8, a woman was caught in adultery, and a lot of people stood around her with rocks. 
and their view is like this on her, and they're all ready to throw. And then Jesus says, by the way, guys, those of you without sin, go ahead and cast a rock. The evil that they saw in others, it's easy for us to forget, exists in us too. So when we want judgment, it better start in here first. And one by one, they laid down the rocks, which was the proper response. You know, I think the thought is this, God expects us to be more introspective than judgmental. Before we worry about everybody else's problems, we might just need to worry about our own. Matter of fact, in that same text, Matthew 7, where it talks about judge not lest you be judged, it goes on to say, before you really consider this person's problem, you might want to go in the mirror and fix the beam in your eye before you worry about a moat in theirs. Reconsider your perspective. You'll never see other people, guy on the street, blight, the plague, problem, or once the beam is adjusted, person who needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is he? I mean, that's just the way it works. I just don't know that we see the way the Lord sees. I don't mean to single that out. It's just becoming more present. I'm just trying to, you know, help us see. God expects us to be more introspective than judgmental. Our first concern should always be ourselves. You know, um, the truth is we are all recipients of mercy. We all have more than we deserve. Um, it's, not, it's wrong for us to cast down condemnation, condemnation on others, look down our noses at anyone. That's just spiritually deluded and blind. If you have any attitude when you drive down the street, I'd be this. But by the grace of God, there go I. Thankfulness. Maybe a cup of cold water. I, I, I don't know. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Judgment should always begin first in the house of God and probably more appropriately in our own hearts. Sometimes the greatest evil in our hearts is the way that we see other people. That's sobering to me. And I, it might need to be for you as well. Secondly, how about this? A focus for all those who are concerned about evil in the world maybe should be this, doing something about it. When you see something that's wrong in the world, you see someone who's evil, you see someone who's broken, maybe instead of just being judgmental, asking for God's judgment, maybe we should say, can I be part of the solution? Can I be part of the problem? Can I, can I get past the problem and be part of the, the help? In the text, the Jews complained about the inequity they saw in the world. Now, this is so, the irony here is just crazy. This was the priests. This, this was the upper echelon of, Ju, of Judah making these complaints. We're not getting our fair due. <laughs> All the while, the widow, the fatherless, the alien, the day, the day worker, who, by the way, in Jewish time, the people who tended the crops had less rights than the slaves that the people owned, the farm workers owned. They could just be discarded like the trash. And, uh, God says, if you want to be worried about inequity, well, just look around you. You want to judge? How about this? Instead of looking at people who need judgment, why don't you look at people as individuals who need to be helped and cared for and loved? 
You see the alien? Help him. See the widow? Do something about it. See the orphan? If you won't be a father to him, I will, but you can. There are those around you who have nothing, and you don't seem concerned about them. If you want to see, okay, we turn on the news, you know, and I, I, I it's a, it is a, a hobby horse for me. I get so weary of all the negativity polit politically. Okay, but how about this? Our world is broken. Can we agree to that? Okay, we can keep complaining about it, or you can get out there and roll up your sleeves and help someone. You can complain about all the evil that you see, or you can go win someone to Christ. You really want to fix it? Be moaning at it as you watch some news station does nothing for anyone. But you can pass out a track. You can invite someone to church. You can take someone a meal. You can be a help. All the wickedness in the world, you let God judge it. How about you try to fix it? Because you needed fixing once upon a time. You needed God's grace. So, so maybe if we want the world to be a better place, how about this? We just might possess the truth, the grace, the knowledge, the know-how to make it a better place. And asking God to judge all the evil and all the homosexuals and all the, the stuff we see constantly around us today, does it deserve judgment? I'll let God decide that. I know what the Bible says. But for my part, I'm going to try to play the role of Jesus Christ and just be a help. Judgment's going to come soon enough for them and for me. But there's, if God's given me anything, then I have the obligation to spill it for my cup to let them have some. And maybe some of the evil we hate could be transformed by a little bit of love and grace. If you want to see more good in the world, well, how about let's measure our own contribution and see what we've added to it. The Old Testament law made legal provision to care for the marginalized of society. A simple example, have a great big square field, leave the corners, leave them empty so the disenfranchised of society can have that, okay? As a church, we have a benevolent fund. There's things in our government and there's things in the church, there's structures to help the disenfranchised. Okay, everybody look up here, I'm almost done. But the greatest way God intended for the poor and needy to be cared for was out of the abundance and generosity of grace-filled, thankful hearts. There's no law for that. Well, there's these laws, these provisions, there's Social Security, there's government funding. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, that's all fine. But the primary way that God intended for people to be helped was out of the grace-filled, thankful hearts of people who've already been helped. That's God's way and greatest means of desiring to help other people. You caring about others. Me and you making a difference. Structures should not always be relied upon to do the job that we can do as an individual. Cliche, see the need, take the lead. Legislation could be great. But the legislation to be a help and a blessing should always reside in our hearts, even when it's not present in politics and religious structures. Jesus said, lift up your eyes and have compassion. And the context here, this is sobering, 
God's intimating that these people weren't even helping their fellow brothers and sisters, but rather taking advantage of them. A, a real simple application is this, as a church family, we have to take care of each other. And I don't know all the ways we have to do it, we have to take care of each other. I, I need you to love me, I have to love you, when one's in need, we have, to, we, have to, we have to take care of each other, and then extend that and spill that over into this world. Number three, it's real short, I promise. Let's be careful not to justify the evil in our lives because we see it in others. Let's be careful not to justify the evil in our lives because we see it in others. This goes right back to where I started with. What's the use in doing good if you're not going to judge it? Well, he says he will in time. The real issue, the argument the Jews were making, is that if sins go unpunished, and you act like God, you're not interested by not zapping him with lightning in the moment. If you're not going to judge others, you know, wickedly, you know, then what's the point? The text makes it clear, God will judge the world. He's going to judge all the evil in the world. And He's going to punish every ill intent. Now, here's, what, here's the great thing. My evil, all my shortcomings, all my sins, all the bad things I've done, the judgment I deserve, so much of the good I forfeited has been judged. It was judged right there. And I'm incredibly thankful. And I had to not teach, treat that with any contempt, but rather do my best, not, not to merit it, just to express my gratitude by living right. Because the judgment has come. My judgment's come there, but if you don't know the Lord, it's going to fall on you. And it's going to fall on you. And, if I, and, and what I should see in you is not all the evil, but your need for that. And let that motivate me. Part of our faith is believing and trusting that God will right all iniquities in time. And that He is long-suffering and merciful. And maybe while we want that to happen right now for them, maybe He's extending the same suffering and long patience that He gave me or someone else. And maybe, just maybe, if God waits and I do my job, maybe that person can turn from the evil ways and be saved. And God's wrath won't fall on them. Rest assured... God's judgment is coming. Let's just make sure we're ready for it to come.